Welcome to the Philcraft Survival Podcast with your host, Mike Glover. Hey guys, welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. Today we're finishing up part two of the modern day survivalist. Last episode, we talked about being prepared, the psychology of survival, mindset, equipment, and we left off with experience, experience in training and real world experience. Today, we're going to talk about experience and that full circle that wraps up this thing we called modern day surviving. I'm going to give you guys some tips on urban and rural survival and also answer a Instagram question that I got on surviving and setting up your house for defense against a potential intruder. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Looking forward to it and can't wait to hear you guys' feedback. All right, just a recap of last episode. You know, we did talk about psychology of survival and why it's important. I told you the reason people live and the reason people die in survival scenarios overall is because of their lack of training. And, you know, training is a full spectrum experience where there's a learning process, depending on where you come from, depending on what institution that you've learned to learn from. But, you know, when people don't have the information stored to have an immediate reaction or an immediate action, they potentially are put in harm's way. They make the wrong decision. You know, this doesn't have to be scaled to understand it in survival, like life or death scenarios, but you could equate it to your everyday life and stress. It could be public speaking. If you, you're not comfortable with public speaking because you haven't trained it, then when it comes time for you to actually do it, you potentially will fail or you'll make mistakes or you'll stutter or you'll forget what you're supposed to say. You'll freeze. So if you take those on a grander scale and it's life or death, then obviously you could see that when you don't have information, when you're not confident in something that you're doing or you have to react to, you could potentially lose your life or be severely injured or not survive. So that's the important understanding to understand is you have to have training in order to be able to react accordingly or appropriately. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist and really smart dude who's able to take big, complex ideas and thoughts and translate them, for lack of a better term, to minions like me who you know just don't, don't have thousand pound heads. So we were talking last night, we were talking about survival psychology and stress. It all boils down to stress and its effects on your ability to make decisions. You know, he made the analogy last night where it could be you saying, seeing your grandmother for the first time at the airport versus you making a life or death situation in a gunfight. The same kind of physiological effects that happen to you chemically are the same on both situations, but how you react to them is dependent on what kind of training and what kind of mechanisms you have to deal or cope with those situations. It's a relatively easy concept. You just need to understand that to be better and more statistically likely to survive, you need to train. So another aspect that we talked about last episode was having this mindset, right? Having this positive attitude, this willingness, this fortitude to survive. If you don't have that and you have all the skill sets, all the training in the world, 
but you don't have the right mindset, you potentially could fail because of that. And that's important to note. You know, it's almost like they're all equally as important. You know, you could have the right mindset going into something. And then as it develops, it turns your mindset upside down. Uh, You know, as you don't get nutrition, as you don't get adequate sleep, as you start to get stressed, your positive mindset in a normal routine world could change, be turned upside down. And now the person you thought you were, who was resilient, who was, you know, had this fortitude, this willingness to survive, isn't the actual case. And so there's an important methodology in special operations that we talk about where we put ourselves in those situations to test that actual fortitude under stress. And that's an important aspect. It's not the mindset when you're comfortable, when you're sitting, you know, in the wood line teaching bushcraft to students and nobody's suffering. It's the mindset you're supposed to have when everything is going to shit in a handbasket, when everything is failing, when your contingencies, your emergencies are failing, and then you have to gut through it. So that's an important delineation to make is it's just that mindset when everything's kosher. It's mindset when everything's gone wrong. And lastly, we discussed about equipment. Equipment is the ultimate facilitator of all these processes, of these the psychological processes of this mindset. You could have the right mindset, but if you don't have the equipment sitting next to you, like the firearm when you have to defend your life because of an imminent threat, well, it does you no good if you don't have that equipment. You can't draw an air gun and hope for the best. You have to be prepared. This turns us into our topic of discussion today, which is getting the experience, getting the training. You know, I teach this training in Modesto, which is the active shooter course, and I apply this principle really to all training that I conduct, and I use an acronym called Isolate, Rehearse, Repeat, or IRR. It's a training methodology that's utilized in special operations where in order to learn something, you have to be able to take the culmination of the event. Let's say it's close quarters battle or CQB. CQB is how you clear houses or how you clear structures or buildings in a rural and urban environment, and then how you do it as an individual and as a collective task with other members of your team. And so close quarters battle is a pretty simple thing to do once trained. But in order to be really good at it, you have to take all the snippets, all the individual subtasks, and isolate them, rehearse them, and repeat them again and again until their muscle memory, and then bring them all together in a culminative task where collectively you're doing CQB together, and it could be assessed in the culmination. So an example would be if CQB is the end state, well, I would have to rehearse and I'd have to practice again and again, single room, two man, three man, four man, five, six man entries into a center fed room and then a corner fed room and then hallways and stairwells again and again and again. And then once I've mastered those individual subtasks, then I could culminate them together and then look at my final product. So when I'm looking at individual training in survival, I have to be able to isolate all those individual tasks depending on the situation. 
I'll make this survival analogy for you. Let's say you're looking at your go bag. Well, you can have a go bag of a whole bunch of different equipment, a whole bunch of different required skills are required of that go bag for you to survive out of that bag. So you have to look at your fire equipment and then you have to practice. You have to look at your water procurement equipment and then you have to practice it. And then when you look at the culmination, which is surviving any type of situation, you have to put yourself in that scenario to find and discover the unknowns that you didn't identify in the subtask of that training. You know, let's say shelters is part of the equipment that's in your go bag, but you never really rehearsed specific scenarios because you didn't have the allocated time. You know, you're good at putting up a poncho and a poncho liner in order to build a hasty shelter, but you haven't done it in the wintertime. And now you're in a survival situation and now you're thrown into something that you didn't really plan for. So when I look at this isolate, rehearse, and repeat, it culminates in the experience or the scenario. And the ultimate scenario or experience will teach you everything you need to know and identify all the deficiencies that you potentially didn't identify in the subtask. So again, looking at the CQB example, well, let's say you rehearse the single man, the two man, all the way to six man. And now you're doing six-man CQB. And now your team or element goes out on a real-world hit. And now you run into a machine gunner who's barricaded in the back of the room that you're in. So how do you address that? Well, you change the tactic, right? You change the way in which you clear. And then you go back and you identify the subtasks that are required. When we were doing this in Iraq, about mid-war in Iraq, Al-Qaeda and all these shitheads were adapting and they were barricading machine gunners and they were identifying that, you know, assaulters go through the front door. So they were aiming their machine guns and machine gun nests that they built up in these back rooms and they were mowing down assaulters. Well, obviously, you know, the culmination or the experience, we learned a lot of lessons learned. So we had to go back to the drawing board and go, hey, what do we need to do now? So we started doing call outs instead, you know, come out with your hands up. And if you don't, we'll escalate all the way into the point in which we drop the structure or kill everybody inside the building because they were determined to die. Suicide was the only option. So if you take that whole learning process and experience, you could apply it to really anything in survival to gain the ultimate experience. I talk about tactical industry and tactical applications that are taught a lot in different social media and media outlets. And the problem I have with a lot of tacticians who teach, they teach based on the scenarios that they've experienced wholly, meaning they don't talk to other people who've been in similar situations and adapt that training for a different scenario. It's really rigid and it's kind of one-sided. Obviously, in a man-made catastrophe where human beings are making decisions and there are a lot of variables involved, you want to have the ability to shape, to alter your plan, to be fluid and never be rigid. So when you're looking at potentially building a better base for training, you need to understand that there's not one set way to do anything and that always there's going to be a different view from the bad guy's perspective on what you're doing 
that could change your tactics. Tactics are never rigid. Training should never be rigid. Let me give you another example of a survival tactic for everyday carry. Let's say you're trying to get better and you want to get better at drawing your pistol and eliminating a threat, a bad guy. On a flat range, you're restricted or constrained by the safety limitations of that range. That's something that you can't avoid. But let's say you're using a flat range, a 25 meter flat range, and you're practicing your draws from concealed onto a target and you're measuring or quantifying time as your measure for performance. Well, using that acronym we talked about, isolate, rehearse, and repeat, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to set up a scenario. You're going to put a target and you're going to stand static and you're going to draw from concealed and shoot a couple shots on the target, try to hit the A zone from a certain distance, and then you're going to get the time. That time becomes your base. Now, remember I told you you have to isolate the task, right? So there's a couple subtasks in that culminated effort. One is I need to isolate the draw from concealed. Well, think about how many different types of clothing that you could potentially wear. So there might be a jacket involved, a button-up shirt, a t-shirt, gym shorts, jeans, khakis, a business suit. And you look at that draw. Now you might be looking at different holsters. You're looking at appendix carry holsters, pancake holsters, overt holsters for suits. Hell, you might even look at the Miami Vice style strap holster underneath your armpit. No matter what it is, there's a whole bunch of subtasks that are involved in just the actual drawing from concealed. Now you isolate one of them. Let's say you're doing an appendix carry from a t-shirt where you practice and build the efficiency. That's where the rehearsal comes in. So you practice it dry. You crawl, walk, run until you're actually getting on target and presenting the gun to a threat. And now you repeat it again and again and again. And why do I say repeat? Because you could learn a sexy, cool ninja technique from an instructor. But when you walk away from that, if you actually haven't committed it to muscle memory, if you hadn't decided to train afterwards and do it again and again and again, then when a real world situation happens and you have to revert back to your immediate action training, then you have to have that stored away in muscle memory or you're not going to revert back to it. I started teaching tactics a long time ago as an 18 Bravo and I would teach guys on my teams certain ways to hold a pistol, for example. Well, if they were shooting and hitting the target and they were fast and accurate, I wouldn't change the way in which they held their pistol because what I saw happen was I would teach them a certain technique and then they go to do it again and again and again. And then in different scenarios, they would revert back to the old way in which they did it. It's not because they were stupid. It's not because they didn't have adequate training. It's because that's what was stored in their memory bank. So in order to change that, it takes thousands and thousands of repetitions to do that. Some people think it takes up to 10,000. Bill Gates actually thinks it takes up to 10,000. And I, I tend to agree with them based on what I've seen in training courses myself with tactics. 
So when I'm teaching a course, why would I waste time teaching you something that you're not going to potentially use later on? Instead, why wouldn't I focus on the tools that I think that you could utilize later in order to build upon the base to make yourself a better shooter? So that was a lot of information. Let's kind of recap on that. What I'm telling you is in order to build on the base of your mindset and your equipment, you need to train that equipment. And through that training, you're going to build this experience. The experience is known as the culmination or the scenario. Now, you don't want to obviously learn from an experience in real life, especially when it involves a worst case scenario, potentially losing your life. The first time in which you practice or rehearse pulling the ripcord on a parachute doesn't need to be five minutes before exiting an aircraft on the ground. You want to do that rehearsal and practice again and again and again until it's muscle memory and then apply it in a scenario where you might be laying on your stomach on a table and then apply it with an instructor who's next to you and then apply it in real life. That's called crawl, walk, run. So you just don't want to start running at full speed. You want to practice and rehearse and repeat and build this training to muscle memory. So the point is when you have an experience, you learn the most lessons learned. In the military, we call this process the after action review or the AAR. In the AAR, we identify what needs to be fixed that are deficiencies and what do we need to sustain things that went potentially right. When analyzing this process in AARs and special operations, they've been known to be brutal because we're not being kind or compassionate when it comes to people's emotions. We're being raw and uncut. When it comes to surviving, there is typically a right answer and in tactics, that's not really debatable, especially when you've gained the experience in real life. I've taught law enforcement pretty much my whole special operations career, whether it was for free by doing joint operations or when I got out and actually working with departments as a civilian. I've always taught SWAT teams, patrol officers, specific tactics that work for me on the battlefield. Now, does it mean that those specific tactics will work for them in their job? No, but during the worst case scenarios, which I've experienced at war, they might be able to apply some of these things that I learned, these hard lessons learned sometimes in war and apply them to their everyday job when shit does hit the fan. So here's the full circle for you. You have the mindset, you have the positive attitude, even under stress. Now, you have the equipment. So to bring it full circle, you need to get out there and you need to isolate, rehearse, and repeat the subtask involved in the culminated effort of what you're trying to accomplish. And then you need to do it to perfection. And then when you do it to perfection, you need to rep it in a scenario or an experience slash culmination. And then you could truly identify what goes right and what goes wrong based on certain variables or specific variables that you've identified in the training sequence. So let's go back to the everyday carry scenario. Well, if you practice every potential subtask, now you have to take all those subtasks and apply them in a culmination exercise. So let's say you set up with Airsoft or with UTM, some kind of simulated round, a scenario in which you have to engage a threat 
or a potential threat in a non-threat environment, or what we would call that in special operations, a permissive environment. So think about that. You've practiced and rehearsed all these isolated techniques. And now based on the scenario that you're given, a person is going to identify themselves as an imminent threat in a non-threat environment or a permissive environment. And now you have to identify whether to shoot or not shoot. And you have to do that in milliseconds. It's very complex. The reason I just tell you that is because people don't understand when they train on a flat range and you train for a specific scenario and let's say it's shooting paper or shooting still or maybe shooting somebody in a simunition type exercise, there's still more variables in real life that you would never see coming. And you look at the law enforcement officers who have to hit the streets every single day, they're immersed in this complex environment. And think about the training that they get and what they're expected to do and perform on the live end, on the real life end. I really tell you that because, you know, I want you to understand that training, especially in surviving, is a very complex situation. It's a very complex scenario. We're talking about defense-related material, but let's say we're talking about search and rescue, about adventure, outdoor experiences, skydiving. I mean, there's a million different situations that you could put yourself in where you would need this type of isolation, rehearsal, and repeating to commit something to muscle memory in order to not be stressed. I remember when I was a young special forces guy and I had to teach, it was difficult for me because I wasn't a good public speaker. But as I practiced, as I rehearsed, as I got real world experience in doing it in front of crowds, I was able to go in front of companies like Oracle in front of 300 plus people and talk like I was talking to a friend in my team room. It takes a lot of practice to get to that real world experience, but you're never not learning and the learning process never stops. It's full circle. It's evolving. It goes again and again and again. There is no grand master of tactics. It just doesn't happen because it always changes and the variables always increase. So I hope that helped a little bit on shedding some light and you know, I'm always excited about these type of episodes because in these type of episodes, it's like I identify a hundred more problems that we could talk about because it's very complex. This week, I plan to talk about nothing but firearms tactics specifically so we could narrow down some of the thought processes when it comes to thinking outside the box and in the tactical realm, especially because the shot show is going on as well. And I want to talk about some of these processes while the show is going on. So I look forward to that in the next episode. Now we're going to answer the question that I was given on Instagram about what to specifically do in the event that you have to set up your house for not doomsday or hide in the bunker stuff, but more like strategic placement of firearms inside the house, go bags. What are my actions on? What are my family members supposed to be doing? Basic home defense stuff that is pretty glanced over because we're looking at the cool guy shit. Well, let's focus on some of the basics and I'll answer this question for you guys. You know, when I taught home defense in Colorado when I was in Tent Special Forces Group, I've actually consulted a lot and would go to people's houses and set their houses up for self-defense or home defense type drills and show them exactly what they needed to do in order to survive some of these kind of scenarios where 
your home was the last line of defense where your castle, your bunker is somehow compromised and now you have to defend yourself in your own home. The first thing you need to do is go through your house and identify potential weak points in your home when it comes to breaking and entering or breaching from the outside in. When you're looking at your, your house, I've seen it time and time again, people will have these expensive door and locking mechanisms on their front door, but then they'll have a sliding glass side door that doesn't have any kind of advanced locking mechanism. You know, they'll have the stick in the slat of where the grooves are that would impede the ability to open it. And if you see that, you could easily break the glass and then make entry into that by removing the stick. So you need to identify weaknesses. When I, I remember I was in Iraq and I was teaching a breaching course and I was teaching breaching armored vehicles, which is a difficult task in itself. And I was going over all these different tools, you know, whether it was the jaws of life, whether it was axes, whether it was quickie saws, all these complex tools that were used for breaching through glass, through metal. And then at the end of the course, I taught them the real technique, which was to attack the locking mechanism because the locking mechanisms in all armored vehicles don't really change. And so you could easily break and get into a vehicle using a flathead screwdriver and a hammer, which takes seconds as opposed to minutes. And everybody was like, well, well shit, why didn't you teach this in the first place? Well, it's important to understand the limitations, but also identify the, the strengths and the best ways to breach as the potential rescuer and getting inside. So, I mean, objectively, stand outside your house and pretend like you're the bad guy and look at some potential deficiencies. Another one is dead space, right? Dead space is a part of the house that's not in anybody's field of view, meaning the neighbors can't see, you can't see. It might be a hidden alleyway between the houses. It might be the backyard where there's no view on the backyard, but there's an access gate. This dead space is usually capitalized on by bad guys because they know they could do whatever they're doing, whether it's attacking a locking mechanism or looking through a window to identify weak points, they could do it unseen. And so you need to identify the dead space all the way around your house. Another thing to look at is if you have an alarm system, what is the reaction time of local authorities to your house in the event that something happens? Let's say your alarm goes off and you live in a rural part of town that's pretty far away from local city or, or county police, and the response time is 20 plus minutes. Well, if the response time is 20 plus minutes, then you might want to look at other means of identifying and deterring somebody who's breaking and entering. Let's say your house has been scouted or wreckied against, and they know exactly your pattern of life. You leave the same time every single morning, and they know nobody's home. Well, if they know that, they know that you have an alarm system on there and they have a 20 minute response time, then they're potentially going to kick in your door and they're going to do it fast. And they're going to go in there with the intent of backing up a vehicle and loading up everything they need to load. And they're going to unask within the 20 minutes because they've planned that. Well, if you have cameras, for example, now pointed at the threshold of the front door, or you have cameras inside pointing at the front door, and they look through the window and they see the overt camera, which is a tactic, right? You want them to overtly be seen by the potential bad guys, not potentially hidden because you want them to see that as a deterrent. Well, if they know that's going to be potentially 
identifying them as a bad guy, they might think twice before kicking in your front door or when they're casing your house, might make the decision not to do it based on what they see or, or observe. Something that I've recently seen online, I saw it on Shark Tank a long time ago, are these things you hang around the front door and they identify who's knocking on your door by sending you an SMS or a text. And then you could see who that is at your front door. Well, if it's somebody trying to break into your house and they identify that you have that on your front door, they might case the place, knock on the door, and you might be able to identify them because they're trying to use a passive method in which to case your place. And so you have a visual on them. But more than likely, if they're doing it from afar, meaning they're doing it and not approaching your house, then they're not going to use the front door because that's the highest likelihood of them being identified. You know, they're not going to kick in your front door, pull up a vehicle to your front driveway and then load up the vehicle. They're going to do a side door. They're going to do a back door. So look at potentially if you're putting cameras on the front door, putting them also on the backside breach points as well. You have to think like a bad guy in order to beat the bad guys. So take an objective look from the outside looking in your house when looking at deterring somebody from breaking and entering. Now let's talk about being on the inside of your house and somebody's going to kick in your door, which is really the worst case scenario, and kidnap for ransom, murder, rape. There's all kinds of crimes that are conducted where they kick in the front door. They know that you're going to be sitting on your couch. Or they know that you're going to be in the house and they're willing to take that chance in order to rob you, in order to kill you, rape you, whatever the case might be. So expect it to be violent if somebody kicks in your front door. So what are some things that you could do? Number one, I talk about what you could do as an individual, but more importantly than your individual actions, it's what can you do to save your family? I always tell people inside your house, you need to identify a safe room or a room that everybody can retreat to as a last line of defense. The more layers you could put and the more obstacles you could put between yourself, your family, and the potential bad guy, the better chances you have of survival. So, you know, one thing is to manage exactly where the family's going to go in case of a situation that goes bad. So let's say you identify a back closet as your safe room. Well, when you plan on that, you need to vocalize an emergency action word or phrase or something that gets everybody to move that location when something happens because everybody might be displaced all over the house. You might have kids upstairs. You might have kids downstairs. You might have your husband, your wife in a different room. So let's say somebody kicks in the front door. Well, you could announce a pro word. That's what we use in the military, which is a word that doesn't necessarily mean what it means. You could say, for example, Irene. And if you scream Irene, then everybody knows something has happened bad. It could be a fire. It could be an emergency type situation. And they know exactly where to go. Well, let's say in this case, it's somebody has kicked in the front door. There's an intruder or a danger from somebody from the, on the outside trying to get into your home. Well, you say Irene. Well, everybody has certain actions depending on who they are. If they're your kids, they drop what they're doing and they move to that closet and remain in that closet until it's safe to come out. And then you have a safe word to allow them to come out. You know, it can be used like in a training game or sequence of events that, you know, make it fun for the kids, but they understand the importance of why they have to do and listen to you in the event that something goes wrong. So you say Irene and everybody runs to the, the closet. Well, your job as the head or the person in charge of security of your home is to move and isolate that potential threat. 
So let's say it is that person kicking in your front door. You would move to the firearm. Now, the firearm could be in a lockbox because you have kids. It could be grabbing the lockbox, moving into a back room to get to that. And then other people around you know to take other actions. The most important thing to do in an event where something happens is to notify first responders as fast as possible. I told you last episode that the average response time in America is 12 to 15 minutes when police are called. And that depends on the severity of the situation, the violence, scaled violence of what's taking place and the threat to the individuals involved. If you get on the phone, you have a minimum of 12 minutes potentially on average before somebody helps you. So again, something to think about because you only have 12 minutes. Well, in surviving a situation like a life-threatening situation, 12 minutes is an eternity. So what can you do in that 12 minutes? Well, if you're moving to a gun and then you're trying to stop or impede the threat, you are defending your family's life and you are that obstacle between the bad guy and your family. So defend life, you know, defend life, whatever means necessary, but also be smart about it. You know, if you have the opportunity to get on the phone and call 911, you need to do that. Let's say you don't have your cell phone near you. Well, you might want to have a cell phone near or maybe in the safe room located where your kids or where your wife would be going in order for them to take that immediate action to pick up the phone and call 911 based on the situation. Something else to think about is having emergency equipment staged in that back room. If you grab a gun or let's say you don't have a gun in your house, but you move everybody to your safe room and you create obstacles, meaning locking doors, shutting doors behind you as you go to this back room. If somebody's still trying to make entry all the way to this back room, you could have a gun stored in that closet inside of a lockbox as your last line of defense, where you know if somebody's kicking in a door and they're making their way to you, that that threat or that person is more than likely going to be an imminent threat. And deadly force in most states is going to be authorized defending your family's life. But remember, to in order to make this plan efficient, you have to do what I said with this isolate, rehearse, repeat. You have to isolate all these tasks, right? Your kids are playing upstairs with Legos and they hear you scream Irene. Well, they need to efficiently and effectively move down to this safe area and do it again and again and again. Because as you develop in these kind of scenarios, when you train for it, you have to do it again and again and again because you get more complacent as life goes on. Your natural pattern of life is a complacent one because 99.9% you're in a safe bubble, you're in a safe haven, but you want to plan for that worst case scenario, which is an emergency type situation. And you want your kids and your family to react based on that pro word and not think, not overthink or, or complicate the situation. When I teach tactics, something I always harp on is to survive, you have to be fast and you have to be accurate. This doesn't have to translate to bullets out on target in the A zone, but this can translate to your speed and your effectiveness in executing a plan of action that you've rehearsed. This could be physical movement off the X and doesn't have to necessarily involve shooting or necessarily defense tactics. It could be utilized in every realm of survival. Speed and accuracy, no matter what the skill set, is important into optimizing your abilities to survive.
All right, guys, I hope that helped you out a little bit in thinking about home defense. I hope to do a home defense episode to give you guys some tips later on. I'm looking forward to all these episodes. I get so excited about survival stuff because I'm a survival nerd. Um, you know what? I wanted to, to end this episode off by talking to you guys about some ideas that I had and something that I'm going to do at the end of the year this fall, actually, in the Reno slash Carson City area, maybe in South Lake Tahoe. I haven't decided yet. But SHOT Show is going on this week, and I've noticed that there are survival-type expos that exist. So this fall, I have an idea to start my own survival expo called the Phil Krause Survival Expo, where we're not just going to focus on vendors that sell equipment, but instead we're going to have vendors who specialize in mindset, we're going to have vendors who specialize in survival equipment, but also vendors who specialize in training. Whether it's tactical training, whether it's survival bushcraft type training, all things survival, including mobility. So all things survival, and I'm truly excited about this. And this is really the official announcement of it. It's going to be next fall or this coming fall of 2017. If you're interested, you're a vendor, you're a trainer, you own a company, and you want to want to be involved, let me know. This is not all inclusive for networking for just vendors, but also going to be open to the public so the public could be more involved. We'll have a section of seminars and workshops on survival mindset, on survival techniques and tactics and equipment. And I'm looking forward to this opportunity and bringing this all together. So if you want to be involved, please email me at media at philcraftsurvival.com. That's media at philcraftsurvival.com. And I can't wait to kick this thing off. Something else I wanted to talk about is recently I posted on Instagram about a buddy of mine named Kent who was shot multiple times in Iraq, lost his leg, and had to rebuild himself to get back into the fight. You know, Kent almost lost his life. Potentially, he was inches away from losing his life. He only lost his leg, but after he lost his leg, he trained back up, stayed on active duty, and now is a commander in special operations. And I'm proud of him because, I, number one, I served under Kent as a young team leader in special forces. And he is the best officer that I've served under in my military career. And, you know, that's saying a lot because I've worked with a lot of officers, but Kent, no doubt, is the best commanding officer I've ever seen. And so Kent started a nonprofit, and this nonprofit helps Gold Star teens who have lost loved ones in special operations. And the premise behind this is they basically provide a network of kids who have lost loved ones and lost parents. And this nonprofit provides them a source for mediation, a source for adventure and getting outdoors and really providing this community where they have support. And it's an awesome nonprofit. You know, I posted it on Instagram and talked about Ken a little bit, but I want to mention his nonprofit. It's called Gold Star Teen Adventures. Gold Star Teen Adventures. Now you could see them on their Instagram. You know, I use Instagram a lot, but their Instagram is at GST Adventures. That's Golf Sierra Tango Adventures. And then you can look on their website. Their website is gstadventures.org. That's gstadventures.org. You know, look at their website, look at their mission statement, check out their YouTube video, and please donate. This is a nonprofit that uses charitable donations to change these kids' lives. And it's really important, especially for the guys and the women who have sacrificed their lives for our country. So thanks to Kent, uh, thanks to that organization, and thanks to you guys for your guys' support. I appreciate all the things that you guys do for me 
so I could live this dream of teaching survival, of mentoring young men and women who want to go in the military. I look forward to every day getting up and experiencing life after the military. So thanks again to you guys. You guys can check us out at philcraftsurvival.com. Check us out on our Instagram at soft survivor, SOF survivor, and at philcraftsurvival. Again, if you guys have any questions, email us at media at philcraftsurvival.com. That's media at philcraftsurvival.com. Also, subscribe and lead feedback on iTunes and SoundCloud. I look forward to the next episode. Again, we're talking about tactical considerations. All right, this is it. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive. <laughs>